Hello and welcome to this Sea Trade Maritime podcast. I'm Emma Howe, Maritime Digital and Customer Development Director at Informer Markets, and in this Sea Trade Maritime Masterclass episode, I've been talking to Captain Gamal Thekri, a prominent personality in the Middle East community and a seasoned maritime professional with a career spanning 42 years. From a cadet to a leader at the top of some of the region's key maritime companies, Captain Thekri has also played major roles in several industry bodies in the Gulf region. I started by asking Gamal to take us back to 1975 when he started life as a deck cadet at KOTC. This was a very interesting way of joining, if you like, because at that time, KOTC was not a Kuwaiti company. KOTC was a British company managed by British in UK, but owned by Kuwaiti. And I joined it as a British company then, and they didn't have a credit chip. So they started the scheme with me, and it was very clear, shall I say, challenge. They said that we don't have a scheme, but if you want to try, we will try with you the credit scheme and see how it goes. And I did accept. Uh, my first ship was a Korean, because all the ships were manned by Korean or the German and some British. And I joined the company then. I stayed with them as a cadet. I progressed with them from... 76 all the way until I left in 2001 and developed my career from cadets all the way to master mariner. I've been become captain on ships of gas carriers, VLCC and brother carriers. And then, of course, on the last stage, I was involved in the new buildings and particularly on the site management team and attending new building ships. This has given me a specific set of skills that was later on, we'll talk about it later on when I was attracted to BPF, actually had hunted me for that particular skill. But during that stage, I was continuing at sea, I've been up the ships, and when I finished building up the ship, I sailed with them and I took up my command and I sailed as a captain on board Kuwaiti ships. Then I was asked by the head office to come into the head office to, uh, in Kuwait to help establish, shall we say, uh, Kuwaitization department. The reason for this was the People's Assembly, politically, was challenging of the government that during the invasion of Kuwait, we didn't have many Kuwaiti nationals on the fleet. Therefore, this was a big gap we need to fill. So I was Arabic speaking, and one of the couple of Arabic speakers only on the fleet, and I was chosen to come and establish this task. So I went to a short to Kuwait, and in fact, I only went for three months trial because I didn't want to go short in Kuwait. As you imagine, my family was Brit and we didn't want to, didn't want to go and settle in Kuwait. So I turned it down and then a year later they insisted and a year later I turned it down and a year later I was insisted by force and I had to accept. So I came to Kuwait to establish a Kuwaitization department and I can see that it has always been one of the landmarks in my career because I've established this department. I recruited young Kuwaitis from high school, treated them in my own way, set it up in the way British system does, if you like, and I created what we call a short curriculum with the maritime colleges in UK. At the beginning, South Tyneside and Southampton were very challenging for this. I said, no, 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 it's a four years 
program and I said, look, if I make a bridging on math and this, uh, so the story short is I managed to make an arrangement where I shortened up the trip, the, the four years into three, and the Kuwaiti Maritime Scheme successed very well, and I took in 120 Kuwaitis over years, yes, 120 every year on school, 10 engineering and 10 cadets. The way I did it, and Shell will give you a statement to that one, because when Shell came to audit us and the management asked me to see them, and Shell asked me, what is your policy and training? And I was explaining to them the process that I set up and the way I did with the UK colleges. And they said, well, you have a Rolls-Royce training scheme. I said, okay, because we're going to Rolls-Royce company, you know. So the way established in a simple manner, the Kuwaiti scheme was a very robust in terms of you must achieve, you must work. And it wasn't left for choices between the guy if he doesn't like it, he steps down. Okay, you can do that, but you need to sign a contract that you're made liable for all the expenses that are actually incurred during that. So his sponsor or his father or brother or whatever, whoever going to be his sponsor, would be made liable for this and has been some cost. But it was a very successful scheme. The successful scheme had made me extremely proud of what Kuwait have achieved in maritime history, because all the Kuwaiti's leadership today in Kuwait, most of them are my cadets, and they are very loyal, and I'm very proud of them. You know, most of the guys now, all the leadership and the managers on all the companies and shipbuilding and Hessing and ship Kuwait shipbuilding, very hard, all the CEO and his deputy and his technical manager and his business world manager, they were all my cadets on the same team. So you could imagine that Kuwait have resulted or reduced a very good food for me. I progressed with this uh, scheme very well. The management obviously appreciated it. I came ashore after that uh, scheme and they said to me, you know what, you better move into the uh, operation of the fleet. And when I moved into the operation of the fleet as a superintendent of operation, then I became the general superintendent or the fleet manager, we call it, into the whole fleet of the LBGs and product. And I stayed there successfully doing a very challenging job, and I was really enjoying it until I was headhunted by BP. I joined BP, I stayed with BP, and BP joining was also a very interesting way then, because in Kuwait, the Marine Superintendent, or the Operations Superintendent, or the Safety Superintendent, they all one person. The role that I was doing in Kuwait, Kuwaiti fleet, and our fleet, by the way, was way too sophisticated for European standards. You know, we build ships of a very high calibers. Uh, Kuwait spend a lot of money on ships. So obviously our fleet were progressive. In other words, we were complying with the Green Award in 1998 before Shell and BP get it in 2003, for instance, five years later, that sort of thing. So uh, they recognized from the CV the set of skills and what I was doing. And I just said, wait a minute, this guy is going to do all this. We have forced him and they're doing that role in here. To make it short, they took me up and they gave me a challenge. Here is BP challenge. They said to me, we're taking you over from a freight manager, very executive, very high role. We're going to give you a higher role and the sky's the limit, but there is one catch. The catch is a challenge and the challenge is a high risk. The risk is we think you are good to build up LBG ships and manage them and do whatever you say in your paper but we need to prove this to ourselves. So what we're going to do, we're going to take you on for you that position, and we give you a year and a half to use. If you do not prove the competence that you think 
you are and what we think you can deliver, then you will have to risk to lose your job. Not to stay as you are, but to lose your job. And I said, well, what do you mean? I said, no compensation, nothing. So in other words, your probation will be a bit longer. I took that challenge on and I realized that, you know, obviously that was a very serious step to take. I took the challenge and I don't believe me. In less than a year and a half, two years, I was promoted and then I was made over to a regional manager for the Middle East. I was conducted to the government of Abu Dhabi. So this is where my first assignment in UAE, I came to the government of Abu Dhabi. His Highness Sheikh Khalifa, the business, used to be our boss when he was crown prince because I joined the Supreme Victorian Council. I stayed in Supreme Victorian Council for three years. I established exactly what I was doing in, in, in BP, a risk assurance department within the uh, Supreme Victorian Council. And of course, was the regular run was the supply coordination committee and the review of the safety. And, uh, it was a very successful mission. So I recruited people, trained them, accredited them. And of course, I started the department. And three years later, got one of them to take over my position as a manager and went back to UK. I had an extremely very good CEO at the time, a group CEO for VP uh, Shipping, who came to Abu Dhabi and they said, no, your place is right there. Come back to me. Abu Dhabi did want to extend my three years and he refused. And of course, uh, it was a very interesting, simple conversation, but I refused also and I went back to UK. I went back to UK as a global vetting manager. I stayed as a global vetting manager with a global accountability all the way six and a half years. The last year and a half of which was obviously restructured in BP and they introduced the quarter clearance global manager and the vetting global manager and we divided the world into three regions. So the region of Europe, Africa, and Middle East have got both departments, one manager. USA has one manager having the two departments and so, so restructuring. I ended up being the vetting and clearance manager for Europe, Africa, and Middle East. Now become vetting and port clearance. So there's two departments here. I stayed with Kuwait, for, with the UK, for, with the BP for 11 years following after this uh, six and a half years, until I was headhunted by the Saudis. And the Saudis came up and again sent me a headhunter and I said, no, I'm not interested, but because he was a friend that he came to me. And believe it or not, we stayed in this conversation for over a year, year and a half. I can tell you that during my career, every time I settled in a role and I think, wow, I've achieved very well, thank God, I'm gonna settle here until I retire. This is the best thing that happened to me. This is what I did in Kuwait. And I thought I would never move from Kuwait because I had a very nice job, very secure, very luxury arrangement, big fancy bar, big fancy villa, et cetera, et cetera, big company, big money. And then when I moved into BP, I said, wow, that's what I want to end up on retiring. Okay, now the whole world network. I made the network in BP in a year more than I did in the 24 years I had in Kuwait. You know, so you can imagine from the role, the nature of the job. Last thing that happens to me, now the pension is there, I'm, I'm going to settle there. I came up to uh, UE in 2011. I set up a company called Red Sea Marine Management. This is owned by the Saudi Arabia capital. It didn't exist here. I set it up here and took over part of the fleet. He had uh, 74 ships. 15 of them were actually managed and operated by the uh, Norwegian in Oslo. It didn't go very well, so they needed some help. 
particular guy came to me and he said, I've Googled you. I found when you Google you've done four projects that were extremely challenging. So you like talent. So he's put his business card on the table and I said, I came to give you a challenge. And I moved into them in April 2011. I came here to Dubai, uh, did nothing but jump between the ships because I didn't have an office, didn't have a company, didn't have a role as such. So I just put companies like an owner representative and general manager and just jumped on board the fleet, assisting the conditional fleet before I took over. And at the right time, I took over the fleet. I set up a temporary office. Then after that, I got the Swiss Tower office here, big fancy office, we made it up, recruited all my people from different industries, different worldwide places, brought them into Dubai. And we managed that very successfully. The relationship between me and the owner has been the single point of accountability to them. That was very clearly set in the beginning. That's where BP skills comes in. Put them all very clearly business plan. And with the business plan, with the roadmap, as it was, I was going by step by step. This was one of my key success. And I was obviously one of the three objectives that they wanted me to do is to turn the company around from loss to gain. This is fantastically achieved. Fantastically achieved oil measure over because I'm an oil measure person and obviously just came from a vetting background. But that helped. And the third thing was obviously reduce the operating cost and operating budget. So therefore the charter was very happy. The charter was the Saudi government as well. So it's already in there. So that's the career I have until I'm 2018. During my time serving and building the Red Sea, we technically and operationally managed them. But we needed a commercial arm, so the owner suggested to us, you know what, with your network, what's going on, why don't we just use this network and do it in a commercial as well, a separate company. Establishing your name, because obviously you've got a different nationality from the company, and of course we can make it do the commercial thing. So we did it properly that way. So in 2018, I decided that we split, giving the company with everything, and I started side by my own company. So MC has been running for six and a half, seven years now, but obviously now it is in here. My own little kingdom, if you like. We do our own things and uh, thank God I'm very happy with that. So this is where I am today. I'm going to take you right back again to, okay. to starting out as cadet. And obviously you used your own experience when you then were in Kuwait and started bringing those high schoolers into the cadet schemes. What did you draw from your own experience to help encourage those cadets? What made them want to join you on that journey? Inspiring people are the best driver. If you actually show the people that success is easily achieved, if they are committed to it, or if you wanted to, if they set their mind to it, and this is what, they were young men, and they were all very rich families, as you can imagine, a lot of them. A lot of these big names are very interesting now. They need to complete their job, but they're still big names. I looked at them. I, number one, I was the Egyptian background or Egyptian origin, and I am a master mariner. I have a fancy big car and a fancy big villa and a very nice office. I used that to inspire the greatest. Says, you know what? You need to do take my place. None of you can take my place because you haven't got qualification yet. Today I'm giving the opportunity. And guess what? All of you can do it. 
better than me because you have the advantage of being here. And so half of the success is that you are not clearly a Kuwaiti, you have the right to work in a company, but the other half is you can work for it, get the certificate. So help me to help you get the certificate. And I was very tough for them, by the way. I wasn't the Mr. Lean guy and Mr. Diplomatic. No, you know, because one of the things that your your yourself and your viewer would, would know, language at sea could be very foul. And that's what how we are. We just buck, buck, buck all the time when we actually talk, even now what, you know. So when we have the cultural differences between people colliding over words like this, you address that issue. So I use that to the creators in the beginning. And I said to them, you know what? If you don't like it, bah, 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 bah. and the guys, some of them took it very seriously and went and complained to me about me, to their management, seriously, and got their fathers and we have a meeting with the sheikh and the sheikh comes in. We had the manager of the company with the sheikh. So if you don't like it, you can leave, but you're right. Your, your son cannot be with this guy. If you want to take your son and go, you are right, go and take your son and go. Because he knew I'm trying to train them for the language. I wasn't insulting anybody. I'm not being nasty for them, but no read on them for no reason. I was just giving them a taste of what it is at sea. The other things I did, before you actually sign the contract for cadet ship ski, all the cadets, and this is one what, what makes the, the Kuwaiti schemes, the Rolls-Royce scheme, all the cadets that I got, all the Kuwaitis that I took in on board, I said, before you sign the contract, you come in with your uh, sponsor, brother or brother, whatever, and you sign the undertaking, I will take you up with me for 10 days on a trip on the ship. You will sit on the ship, you will see what you would do to be an officer or an engineer, and if you finish this time and come up here, I'll give you two weeks, go with your family and think about it, and then you come to us with your sponsor again and just say, yes, I want to sign, knowing what the nature of the job is, knowing all that swearing words, knowing all that foul language, and I will sign to Because if I pull out, before I serve as a master or as a chief engineer for two years, then I'll make liable to pay all the expense. That was made in a legal contract. The Kuwaitis did it in the right way. Kuwaitis did it correctly. I set up the thing and the, the management was supportive. People's assembly was supportive in the government. And we have the scheme very expensive, but it was very correctly and put them in the right scheme. So each one of them came with me. So every trip was 10 people, five engineers and five uh, uh, navigators, deck, and then we take the ship from Kuwait, sail all the way to South Canal, come out with South Canal, show them the perimeter and Vera, then take the flight and go back again. But during that time on board the ship, I was deliberately instructing officers and engineers to deal with those cadets in a certain manner. Yeah. In a certain foul manner, if I may say. You put them pressure on it. And I had a little video camera that became very famous in the history of the OTC because it's in Africa. With all the tips we call them. So some of the guys have been giving up to wire up the corners what have you and I put the videos on them and hey are you happy with this? Would you really see yourself doing this? And say, yeah, I'm determined to take your place. Fine, that's good. We actually shared that on display on the company with their families when they came to actually sign the contract. And I can tell you, it was a fantastic effort that resulted from a full awareness of what they are coming toward before they actually sign. And that is why today we have all these managers 
think with all this marine management because we took it step by step. And I'm so proud of them because a lot of them came to me in UK, long way from, from Heathrow, came to me all the way, you just say hello. I lived in Sheffield, they used to come to me in Sheffield. I lived in Essex, I lived in Surrey, in Camberley, they used to come to me in Camberley. So it was something I will continue to be proud of for the rest of my life. You're listening to a Sea Trade Maritime Masterclass podcast with me, Emma Howe, talking to Managing Director and owner of MC Ship Management, Captain Gamal Fekri. Don't forget, if you like this podcast, you can listen to more in the Masterclass series during Sea Trade Maritime Middle East Virtual. You can also find a whole host of additional on-demand podcasts, webinars and white papers at seatrade-maritime.com. So please do take a look and sign up to our free news and information newsletters. So far in this podcast, we've heard about Captain Fekri's perspective on practical experience. So picking up the conversation, I asked Gamal to talk about the importance of education to today's maritime professionals. Education is a must, I'll tell you, because you cannot take things by experience, yes, and I'll talk later about differences, specialities, and between diverse experience. If you are specialized and you have the right educational, if you like, towards your job, you're bound to success. This is what it is. And I also felt and looked this correctly in BP. In BP, that was very, very obvious. I came with a marine background, educated in the Arab Maritime College, which is now called the Arab Maritime Science and the Technology and Marine Transport. Before it used to be Arab Maritime Transport only for shipping. It was only academy for shipping. So they were very focused on our training. Our training was exceptionally good, exceptionally well. It was in-depth from people who are already from deep seas and giving us the lectures. So education is a must. My, of course, high schools was were very good. I'm a very good student from uh, secondary school and high school. And then after high school, I went up to university. And from university, I didn't, I didn't actually continue for two or three months until the opportunity of the Marine Academy came about. Then I moved into the Marine Academy and I stayed there. I continue with the Marine Academy and I had the opportunity many times to do further studies in different ways, but I did not. I specialize in marine transport. And I think this was one of the best things that happens to me, that I was focused in maritime. When I went into BP, for instance, my first job was in marine assurance. Marine assurance superintendent, you used to assess a report made by a specialized accredited inspector, captain or chief engineer, accredited by the oil company, the National Marine Forum, and the report was very technical. Obviously, of course, we understand it as a master mariner. But I went and said, no, 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 I want to be in his boot so I can see where he's coming from. And I took the accreditation. One of the objectives I put to myself in BP is to gain accreditation from the OCMF. And the company let me do that. I gained accreditation. And that accreditation, and I think, again, one of the best things I've ever done. Because this little accreditation later in developed business opportunity and job opportunity and achievement in career beyond your imagination. So that would be a recommendation you would make to people entering the industry is 
look at the different aspects and decide where you want to specialize and where you want to develop and learn more? Would that be your recommendation? Absolutely. Um, You know, I've seen in BP the diverse set of skills, and I've seen the specialized. The specialized, the one with the same route, it goes up with these educations and goes up further up and can reach to an executive role in that route. But the diverse takes a little bit shorter stints on every business unit until it goes into the business route. And then, of course, you become senior level leaders from that route as well. So they, they both achieve the, 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 the high ranking, but of course, different timing, different circumstances. And if you are in the right place in the right time. And so it is important, but I also don't want to discourage people from being diverse in their experience. If people have the opportunity to achieve their objective, but before they get to it, they have to diverse into finance education, as I learned later on, as I had to do, or marketing or sales or something before they come into the project management, fine, let it be, because it will also enrich their background and their experience. That's also, you know, so we need to give them both options. You mentioned that you started at university before you joined the academy. What made you interested in shipping? What was the trigger? I would tell you that this is pure coincidence. And, and uh, we, I was, I was always wanted to be an, an, what you call it, an engineer in the army. And uh, my mom, or shall I say, my uh, computer choices, if you like, was not achieved by the government. And I went into the commerce and trade university. So on a commercial trade university, and I come from a background of open-minded and things like that. We sat on on the bench with a lot of all the students in the university. Just didn't didn't seem like the right place, if you like. And this is that. And uh, I did that for two and a half months nearly. And then a friend came to the family. A friend of the family is, is a captain at sea, and he was asking, "Hey, well, how are you? And what have you?" And I said, "Oh, I wanted to just said, what." You, commerce trade, you have already enough companies near yourself and your brothers. No, no, why don't you just go to the academy? The academy was newly established at the time. So we didn't know. It was just being split from the uh, Naval Academy. And then the Arab League have just set it up alone. So that was the first year. I said, oh, the academy just started up, then it's taking private students into it. Private, you mean how much? It was very expensive at the time. So that day, believe it or not, a guy said to my family, if he wants me, I'll take him up today. Said, oh, today is a bit later. Let's do it tomorrow. So tomorrow we had money. I had my case and my older brother's car. And we drove to the academy and he went back with the car and I stayed. I was, did the test. He actually made it very flourish and, you know, this attractions, young men, you would go around the world and from day one, you would get salaries rather than just being uh, sponsored by your family, excuse me, the credit chip, uh, pocket money. And it was all sounding uh, very attractive and very interesting, but yet it was a tough journey, I can tell you. Truly, that was the inspiring part, that family and uh, that friend and the family who was a captain who did that. And he did actually live until he saw me a captain. He saw me a captain and he was very proud that I was addressing one of the conferences in Egypt. This was the inspiration from the family side. I was going to say, did you have a mentor from the industry? So it was obviously this family friend. Mentor is a part of the message that I want to share with you today. Uh, It's always nice to have a mentor. Everyone 
he or she should always have a mentor. Doesn't have to be in the same field. Doesn't have to be in the same speciality. Mentor is, is, is a very good thing. And BP is very big in mentoring. And it is very successful in there. I would agree with that. I'm going to go back to 1986 now and the time you were in the Gulf War. Tell us a bit about your experience then, because that obviously would have been a a, a fairly exciting part of your career. Yes, (laughs) Yes, that was the the Gulf War. We had the, obviously, the tanker war started in the Gulf War, and it was very high risk coming into the Gulf and and, uh, loading ships from Kuwait and what have you. So it was decided that we eliminate the risk into a certain number of ships that actually get protected by the Navy. And those ships were going into a convoy in the Gulf and out. And I used to be part of this. And I made a lot of money, by the way, because you see, it was all the bonus. And, <laughs> and then when we come out of the Gulf, we get a ship that comes to take this oil and sail. Then we go back again and get the oil there. And then, of course, with my experience and my familiarity with the region, and of course, my long-term service, long-time serving with the company, the company has chosen me to be stationed in Khan or in Fujera. The position was in Khan itself. We have a bit of an office and company and, and uh, you know, set up a hotel and what have you. And I used to organize the STS operation between the ships that goes in and get the oil uh, from Kuwait or from Ras uh, Joima. Saudis and have you and come back over there. We still at the time we have a bit of oil in the Habji side, you know, just south of Kuwait, joint between Saudi and Russell Zoo. And then it comes up, I organized the STS for the cargo, for the oil, and also SS for the bunker and uh, get this up and get the documentations and masters to sign and have you. And just acting like a port authority on my own, if you like. And it was a very uh, of course, we had to buy the ships in and bear them up together. And it was a very uh, lengthy, successful scheme. In fact, it saved Kuwait, if I say so. And that's the most of the oil that came afterwards from the Saudi for Kuwaiti account. It's actually exported that way. So we used to do three or four million barrels a month. It's easily a couple of ships. It was a big ship and small ships coming in and out. We used to arrange convoy protected by the British Navy and the uh, American Navy. It depends on the ships that we get, because if the ship that we have is a British flag, we get the British Navy Armada to escort it and come back with it. And if it's American, then we have four ships that we flag to American to, uh, you know, our own ships flag them to Americans and put them up, and then the American Navy take them in and out in the convoy, integrated, loaded, and come back again. And Habji, we come back again. That stayed in until we came to the Gulf War, the Liberation War. And uh, this is the baton has changed now. And then I become as a captain, took over one of the ships to go inside into Bahrain and Dubai, because we used to bring the oil from Dubai, discharge it in Bahrain for the refinery, take it from Bahrain and take it to Rasjaima, uh, to Saudi for the flight to hit or to strike. That's fascinating. It was a very foolish of us because one was young at the time and don't think about it. But could you imagine walking all the time with the helmets and the boots and the 
your passport in a plastic bag and in your in your pocket and you know sort of knowing that any time the missiles when it comes you know be abundant ship straight away so you don't have to and then this leg we're going to be sleeping on this side of the ship because the missile will likely hit this side and then the return will sit on this side of the ship because of the missile will hit from this side and it was a bit of a panicking time and as i said also it was part of the the sort of commitment, if you like, to the country, to the job. People only who continue on this role are the people who loved Kuwait and become part of Kuwait, you know, shall we say, we, it's our job, we protect it, but also protecting the company that operates the job. So this is also something that, uh, you know, we will always live to remember. Even if others don't remember, we still remember. Do you miss being at sea? Yes, of course. At sea was a totally different lifestyle. And, but don't forget that we have a different era from today with all these communications and live conferences and the internet and whatever. You know. When I was a captain at sea, I was a captain at sea. I was a captain of the ship. I was the, the president of this world of our own. We are sailing. Once we sail, we get the message. If we do by message and uh, this is where we're going to go. And then you manage day to day and you have a different life. There were 44 people or 40 people who don't know anything about each other and then suddenly become a family and do an exercise and drills and emergency drills and eat and watch TV together and cinemas. and uh, So it is a different lifestyle. Life at sea was very different from what it is now. Now it, it's not considered life at sea. It's a part of the life. You consider yourself ashore, if you like, the, the conference call and work there. You uh, become a messenger to what the office decides, rather than before the office becomes the messenger to what the ship decides. So that's a big difference on the philosophy. So if you could take the environment as it is now and look back, what elements of the past would you bring to the future? Commitment to the job, because when we sail, Everyone on board the ship, regardless of nationalities and religious or race, used to do his or her job in fullness. We don't have to wait for the office to tell us what to do. We are, we are the protector of the asset. And don't forget that the most expensive asset is the ship itself. The ship used to be 17 and 75 million dollars. Plus it carries a hundred million dollars of cargo. So all this on the hands of a few people who are now trusted to do it. So you'll find everyone was really committed to the job on board and, and they never had any shortcoming. Nowadays, people are, you know, they can leave the, I have some practical experience from people that I had to set, who they actually busy with their phones, with the message and leaving their job and people sitting, uh, talking with their family on the Skype and leaving their duties and because this became available and I, I can tell you i'm one of the few people as a ceo that took a decisions to uh, limit the internet on ships i'm very much against it i'm for it down in a common room in a certain place but not having it around the whole ship as happens and people are bragging about it and i challenged the ilo for it and i said i have four or five Life example disasters because of the internet where people actually go and cost the owners millions, not uh, just a small money. Because people now suddenly go down to the engine control room instead of looking at the engine log and stop looking, taking the round, round, 
no, there is an internet on the computer, and you went down, and it's already midnight or two o'clock in the morning. They watch the round, and overheat alarm is happening, and they're needing somebody to stop the pump. It's not stopped, and then of course turbocharger damaged, and we had to pay one million dollar for one. Yeah, yeah, one ship, and it's not a VLCC, not small ship. It's actually a seven and a half thousand. So you could imagine a million dollar. One job only because the guy actually was so busy with his wife, and the other one was his girlfriend and the bridge uh, third officer was a Japanese girlfriend and had an accident. You know, this sort of thing is that we need to bring back. The technology has not made it safer by giving you a radar that detects things because it has been there all the time, but yet the eye was able to decide whether the target is coming this way or coming this way. This will only show you it coming this one, but when you naked eye and your sense of hearing and what it is, you know, you can judge better than the computer. So that's what people will argue with me. No, 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 technology is, of course, we are all for technology, I'm in for technology, but it's a commitment of the work. That's very clear. So if we go back to your career span and we talk about catalysts in your career, if you could name one significant catalyst, what would you think that would be? I had a Scots captain who was an old man in a real sea that was a little bit, shall I say, inspiring, if you like. And I've always seen the wisdom and, and the way that this guy handled the ship at the time made me feel proud of him and made me feel like, you know what, I want to command the ship this size one day to be like this guy. This was one catalyst that I would always remember. But on the, on the office side, as I came ashore and I seen it, I think the uh, mentioned earlier on the accreditation, the accreditation for me was a big catalyst. It was, a, was, a, was something that none of my colleagues done it. They have always, BP has been there for years. So I became the only manager in BP only marine management VP that has the accreditation of the OCMF. So I can go and inspect ships and put my report into the OCMF as an inspector. But again, I'm the manager who assists this, but I don't assess my own report, of course, and don't assess our own report. But I used to inspect ships for BP and used to fail ship for BP, believe it or not. I inspect ship for third part. That was also later on have shown its a tremendous value because it's because of this accreditation that I actually succeeded as a betting manager. Because of this accreditation, I was choosing to be a regional manager for the Middle East. And because of this accreditation, I was seconded to the government of Abu Dhabi and set up the vetting department there. And then, of course, came back as a global vetting manager. And I sat in the committees that you saw in the, in the, in the CV about the OCIMF committee, the uh, SIRE focus group, CDI committee, the, uh, the LNG technical committee, all these committees because of my ability as a manager, but also as a vetting clearance uh, credential. Yeah, I can see. So those were two quite significant catalysts in the process of your career. We've talked about the training scheme for QAT nationals, which was obviously a highlight of your career as well. And we've talked about the fact that you've mentioned retirement. Is there anything else you want to achieve before you retire? No, absolutely not. I want to just to be 
able to help people with no return. I want to share my experience with people, and I'm doing now, by the way. I'm doing a lot of things, no need to mention, because I don't get paid for it. And I, I don't even suggest, right? and I go to, this is why you saw me in my office there. There's all this, and I meet there, and I talk to conferences, and I meet people and give them advice. In fact, yesterday was no, no different, but with no return. I tie a relationship between governments. I have between Egypt government and Abu Dhabi government some job, and Dubai and uh, Egypt some job, but uh, with no return. This is what I'm doing voluntarily. I'm doing voluntarily jobs now, but I really believe that the young blood must be able to do what I'm doing now and gain them. You know, I'm already at the age that I should be enjoying my life. Very admirable. I have already my lifetime achievement award in here in, in my wall there. You can see it in the wall there. Yes, and, yes. Uh, so all, all this, all this prizes uh, around around you there, uh, it's, it's really a, a sense of achievement that, thank God, I'm very happy and I'm very grateful to it and to all to my friends for it. And, and last but not least, that million-dollar question. For those youngsters thinking about a career, thinking about what they should do with their lives, what would be your word of advice and how would you encourage them to enter the, the shipping industry? Not only shipping industry, any industry. Any industry that you wish to, to embark on and any industry that you want to, let them, he or she, search right deep inside them about what is their career anchor from now. Career anchor, it is something inside each one of us or them that no one knows it except the person. That's the thing that controls or affects or influences the way we think or the way we do things. Let it be money. Somebody wants to achieve money, wants someone to achieve influence, wants some achieve religious, family, whatever. If every young person try to identify from within what is the inside it that you, you want to do in five or ten years, you will find that you're reaching for this career anchor to be able to decide where it's going to go. Because there's no point ignoring this and just say, I want to be an engineer. And then find that deep inside you, you want to be close to your mother because she's old and she's ill and that's it and find that, no, I cannot travel with my mother. Okay, you spoil the career. Or vice versa. I want to be next to my mother, but you know, you choose a job that requires you to be traveling all the time. And this is your making living out of it. Would you do? There is something inside us. If we can reach deep inside us, ourselves and find out what is this thing that influences us in, in the way we decide where to go and what we want, that will be the success. That will be the way to success. So in other words, clarity on your own thing. Thank you for listening to the Sea Trade Maritime podcast. You've been listening to the captivating personality that is Captain Gamal Fekri share with me his life in the shipping industry and the lessons he's learned that hopefully you can adapt and deploy into your own career paths. Don't forget, if you like this podcast, you can listen to more in the Masterclass series during Sea Trade Maritime Middle East Virtual. You can also find a whole host of additional on-demand podcasts, webinars and white papers at seatrade-maritime.com. So please do take a look and sign up to our free news and information newsletters. 
We hope you've enjoyed listening and we'll see you soon. Bye.